Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, everyone, to the Unpoly Podcast. I'm Steve Pakin. And I'm John Michael McGrath. Today on the pod, Doug Ford warns educators not to, quote, force his hand by striking. He also professed his love for Hamilton as the Tory star construction on New Steel Town GO Station. And the municipal election is October 24th, so we're bringing you week two of episodes around municipal politics and platforms to look out for. This week, mental health and addictions with leaders in the space outside our big cities. It's Wednesday, October 12th, 2022, so let's get to it. Well, JMM, just when we thought we were going to be back together again in the same space, in the same recording studio, uh, well, what are you going to do? It's Thanksgiving weekend. I'm in Northern Ontario. Where are you? Uh, I'm at home. We're, we are back doing this remote, just, uh, you know, the vagaries of fate have separated us once again. <laughs> God willing, we'll be together again before long. But uh, you, you remember last week we um, we mentioned that uh, we wanted to give a shout out to a listener who was a student at Huron University College. And this week I want to do the same thing. I want to give a shout out to someone named Catherine who emailed me to say that she's a registered social worker in Waterloo, Ontario. You'll like this part. She says, I'm born in 1984, which I believe makes me the same age as JMM. And then she says... Sup, elder millennial bro. (laughs) Now, I don't speak millennial, so I don't quite know what that means, but I did understand this next bit. Catherine says, I really can't tell you how much I love your content and how much I recommend it. I frequently share episodes of The Agenda and On Poly. What I value so much about your content is A, that you focus on Ontario, B, you're both incredibly intelligent. She obviously doesn't know me very well. C, you're just very accessible in terms of your personalities and content. And D, you seem politically neutral and unbiased. You demonstrate clear intentions to provide unbiased journalism, and that means a lot to me. JMM, during the height of the pandemic, your Twitter account, she writes, was my primary source of information and your daily summaries were life-giving. What do you think of that, partner? That's not bad. No, not bad at all. Uh, you know, I, I have said this to other people before, but you know, if the rest of my career is a, a parade of mediocrity, but I was at least <laughs> useful in a pandemic, I will retire happy and say that I did good. Awesome. Catherine, thank you for that lovely note. Do keep listening. Do keep sharing. Okay, on with the show. Let's set up issue one. I'm asking to, uh, to the unions, the teachers' unions, please, don't go on strike. Don't force my hand. Just please, uh, you know, continue negotiating because I'm a strong believer in negotiating. Uh, but do not, uh, do not go on strike. That, of course, Premier Doug Ford with some choice words for the teachers of this province during the Q&A portion of a press conference with reporters last Thursday. We're actually going to get to the real details of the transit announcement that he was in Hamilton to make right after we talk about what the Premier just said. Okay, John Michael, how are those remarks being interpreted? Unsurprisingly, people see this as a threat to uh, legislate potentially striking workers back to the classroom. Uh, Obviously, not a huge surprise given the language the government has been using for quite some time now. But, you know, governments tend not to say it very clearly, at least while negotiations are still ongoing. You don't want to blow up the negotiating table while people are at least 
theoretically still uh, trying to hash issues out. Our listeners may recall, we've talked about this a few times on the podcast, that uh, QP is uh, one of the first unions or the first union to really be in a potentially strike position. Uh, they represent uh, support workers and, and other sort of non-teacher roles within uh, Ontario's schools. They held that strike vote. Uh, the results have been uh, overwhelmingly favorable for a, a potential strike action. Uh, QP has a total of 55,000 members, 45,000 or so uh, voted in favor of a strike. Uh, there were a few thousand absent votes, you, I guess you could say, uh, or people who didn't show up. Uh, QP says that uh, the, the total of votes cast was 96.5% in favor of a strike vote. Further, uh, on Friday, QP said that they would file for what's called a no-board report if there wasn't any new progress in their negotiations with the provincial government and school boards. Uh, this is basically a procedural step on the way to putting the union in a legal strike position. It is not uh, a strike warning yet, but it, it gets the union further into a position where they could call a strike uh, on relatively short notice, but it's going to take some time for them to get through this procedural step first. Okay, that's the union side of things. How about the Minister of Education, Stephen Lecce? What's he had to say about all this? Well, you know, the, the minister says that the government's offer is reasonable and responsible. Uh, we've been over this before, but just to you know, re remind people, the province is offering raises of 2% a year for workers who currently make less than $40,000 uh, a, a year. And they are also offering 1.25% a year for workers who make more than $40,000. Uh, QP is asking for larger annual increases of 11.7%. Uh, you know, obviously they, they have disputes about what is and is not fair. The government says that the, the warning of a strike, the, the calling the, the no board report is not fair for families. Well, obviously, um, how do I put this? We have seen this movie before and both sides are trying obviously to win the battle of public opinion here. The government is trying to keep its expenditures down. The union is portraying its members as grossly underpaid with many of them. Uh, they say having to take on second jobs to make ends meet. This is all, if I can put it this way, and this is not to take anything away from the real um, uncertainty surrounding this whole thing, but this is all fairly standard fair choreography in a public sector wage dispute. And we'll obviously just have to continue to watch and see how it all plays out. As you say, we have seen this story before. You, you almost... You, you could take the names off of the players and the screenplay, if you would, is very similar to what it was under previous governments. In some ways, it's like, you know, the pandemic, the, the inflation of the last year, or some of that stuff might as well have not have happened. It's just, it, it, it is a very familiar dance. Um, that said, there are uh, real details here. And I think we'll give QP a fair hearing here and, and you know, say that, you know, many of their workers make uh, less than $39,000 a year. That's eighteen seventy-five an hour if somebody works a 40-hour work week. Uh, the, they say that the government's offer of a 2% increase on 40000 a year amounts to just $800. That doesn't go very far in a place like the city of Toronto, where obviously, you know, one or two bedroom apartments now regularly rent for two, three thousand dollars $3,000. Even the city of Toronto says a, a hostel sized uh, unit uh, can rent for uh, almost $1,000. 
uh, Ontario's Living Wage uh, Network. They estimated that the the living wage in the city of Toronto is $22 an hour, and that is just to cover really sort of the basics of living. We're talking food, clothing, shelter, uh, childcare for those who need it, uh, transportation, medical expenses, maybe a modest vacation, but not retirement savings, not debt repayment, uh, not uh, saving for home ownership or your children's post-secondary education, really nothing except the, the smallest cushion for a potential emergency. Now, of course, we've given QP uh, their uh, due. I will also give fair time to the government here. The government isn't just negotiating with QP, of course. They've got much larger and more consequential negotiations uh, yet to come uh, with the, the larger teachers' unions. And so what the government's concern here is that any concession they make to QP is going to be the floor for future negotiations. Uh, Stephen Lecce told CBC that we're they to give QP what they are asking, it would set the stage for a $20 billion increase across the education sector. Obviously, I'm going to just say I'm taking that particular estimate with a grain of salt. Uh, we are reiterating a few times in, in this discussion that uh, uh, a lot of this is like public relations work. Uh, but I think it is fair to say that uh, the the future increases that they are going to have to negotiate for teachers uh, are going to carry a much larger price tag than what they eventually do come to terms with uh, when it comes to QP. Well, if you're taking that estimate with a grain of salt, I'm taking it with a dump truck full of salt uh, <laughs> because uh, the, the Minister of Education is a good communicator, but he's being very mischievous here by suggesting that uh, if if we give CUPE what CUPE wants, that will therefore set a precedent for the teachers to get the same thing, and that will add up to a $20 billion price tag for the taxpayers of Ontario. That's a lot of ifs. And, and I don't recall, you know, I don't think I can recall an example in the past where whatever CUPE settled for ended up being a template for what the other teacher unions settled for. So I understand the minister is trying to mold public opinion to his side of the argument. Fair enough. Um, but it's also mischievous because it just doesn't work that way in the real world. Now, here's one of the other things I wanted to raise here, which is the province has just gone from a $13 billion budgetary deficit to a $2 billion plus budgetary surplus. And while that's terrific, I mean, nobody wants to be running massive deficits. It did make me wonder whether the province, you know, you can, you can do these things, and I'm not talking about cooking books, but I can, you know, you, you can obviously do things where you show, you know, earnings in future books and, and, you know, bigger deficits if you want to. And anyway, there's a, there's a way of massaging the numbers. And I wondered whether the Minister of Finance really wanted to show a $2 billion deficit because, you know, if you're in the public sector right now and you're a teacher looking to negotiate with the government, your first reaction to that is going to be, aha, you guys do have money and now it's time to pay the piper because we sat on our wage demands for the last two and a half years during covid so again, all part of the dynamic of public opinion uh, that is a part of every contract negotiation. Well, and just again, to remind our listeners, of course, the issue of public compensation isn't just something for podcasters like you and I to gab about. It's also something that the government is literally defending in court right now. And, you know, courts are very leery about uh, trying to force governments to adopt certain policies. But 
I have to wonder if this kind of sudden surplus um, might end up... It's probably too late for it to show up in this most recent court hearing, but there's a very high likelihood of appeals. (laughs) And I I, I think uh, it would be interesting to see if, if this series of incidents of the deep deficits suddenly becoming, you know, modest surpluses, it would be interesting to see if that shows up in court later. Okay, here comes issue number two. I have all the confidence in the world. We're going to work together very, very well to make sure the people of Hamilton are represented, uh, not not only uh, municipally, but with our, our, our two great MPPs here. Uh, they, they, they just work really hard for the people here. And I, I love the hammer. These are hardworking folks out here, and I just, I just relate to them. Uh, that, of course, is uh, Premier Ford uh, extolling the virtues of the city of Hamilton, which is uh, getting a GO station. The Confederation GO station is supposed to be complete by 2025. This trip to Hamilton certainly went a lot better than the last big announcement that the Tories made in Hamilton, which we've got to go back a few years to 2019. The Transportation Minister Caroline Mulrooney came to town to announce the cancellation of the LRT, the light rail transit line, which, uh, of course... There was, um, you know, a great deal of support behind by the previous Liberal government. And then at the very last minute, uh, Minister Mulrooney ended up not showing up to her own press conference to make that announcement because uh, the protests against the cancellation were so bad. So a, a big distinction this time from last time, to be sure. It's been really interesting watching this uh, story, uh, the the LRT story in Hamilton unfold, because I think one of the controversies within uh, Hamilton politics has been, uh, you know, the question of which would serve residents better, right? The LRT versus more improved GO service. And certainly uh, ex-mayor and now mayoral candidate Bob Bertina was quite vocal on the fact that he thought that uh, improved GO Transit service would do more for the residents of Hamilton uh, than the LRT would. And bus rapid transit too. (laughs) For now, fingers crossed, we do seem to have arrived at a a point where the issue seems to be settled. And having lived through uh, the Toronto transit wars of like 2010 to 2014 or so. I wouldn't uh, wish more transit chaos on on any city, uh, much less one that is as beloved both by uh, my uh, podcast co-host and apparently the premier. Uh, You know, he said Ford loves Hamilton. Uh, So does that, Steve, make this hammer time or hammers time? (laughs) Uh, Okay, that was a terrible joke. That was a very awful dad joke. And I will just simply respond with this. Now you're a millennial, you get that reference, don't you? Uh, Yes, I I must have heard that song on, you know, FM radio back before Spotify, (laughs) back before MP3s. Shout out to MC Hammer. God, we're getting so old. (laughs) Speak for yourself. (laughs) Well, uh, okay. Doug Ford says he loves Hamilton right now, and he actually spoke with uh, what appeared to be a great deal of sincerity about how much he liked Hamilton. Uh, But um, let's also put on the record, the Tories have had a tempestuous relationship with Hamilton. Uh, Once upon a time, um, I mentioned the cancelled news conference already, but Minister Mulrooney was also disinvited from the Hamilton Chamber of Commerce. Uh, That was after Premier Ford was uninvited from a major union's holiday party. This was LIUNA, the Laborers International Union of North America. They've kissed and made up since then, and LIUNA actually endorsed Mr. Ford during the last election. Um, 
you know, I guess both sides have buried the hatchet when you look at the results of the last election uh, this past June. You do think of Hamilton as a labor town. So yes, Hamilton Mountain, Hamilton West, Ancaster Dundas, and Hamilton Center all did vote NDP. That's three seats. But Hamilton East Stony Creek abandoned the NDP for the PCs. And Flamborough-Glanbrook, which is one of the suburban ridings in Hamilton, it stayed in the blue column. So the liberals were shut out there. So much of Hamilton seems quite content with the PC government at the moment. And, you know, it's it's interesting. Uh, you talked about improving relationship, let's say, between Hamilton and the Progressive Conservative Party. Um but the clock is always ticking for the next election, uh, in this case, 2026. Uh, we're not going to start doing election watch yet, but uh, this ghost station is supposed to be complete and up and running by 2025. I suspect that is not an accident of the calendar, but I mean, do you think it's actually going to be up and running by then, Steve? Uh, I mean, the short answer is no, and I'm not, uh, you know, that's not a cynical observation. That's just simply an observation based on a past track record, uh, the ability of Metrolinx and its chosen contractors to bring projects in on time and on budget uh, has not happened. Uh, basically, they don't. And if it's anything like Toronto's Eglinton Crosstown LRT, which is having all kinds of complications, and they've just announced it'll be delayed yet another year, it was supposed to have been open already, you know, 2025 for this one? Who knows? I'm dubious, but who knows? For our second week of Civics Month, we thought we'd roll out something that was brought up a lot by last week's outgoing elected officials, and that is the opioid crisis, and more broadly, how provinces and municipalities are handling the mental health and addictions file. Joining us today are two guests. Catherine Hardman beams in from Stratford. She's the CEO of Choices for Change, a counseling center for addictions like alcohol, drugs, and gambling. The organization's been recently branching out into helping the homeless as well. Her organization serves Huron and Perth counties. That's in southwestern Ontario, south central Ontario. And let's also go north to Holly Govan. She comes to us from Thunder Bay and is the executive director of Elevate NWO, Elevate Northwestern Ontario. Elevate provides information, care, and support for those living with hep C and or HIV. It also links its members to services, resources, and advocacy, focusing on the basics, food, shelter, income, emotional support. So, uh, Catherine and Holly, we thank you for joining us today, and let's get right into questions. Holly, let's start with you. Can you just explain, the people who use your organization's services, how does that intersect with the issue of opioid abuse that we're talking about here today? Elevate NWO is uh, located in uh, Thunder Bay, Ontario, uh, and we uh, represent uh, the country's um, highest uh, risk of overdose um, per capita. Uh, and so the work here uh, at Elevate NWO, where I work, um, intersects uh, in the way that we uh, support people who are living with HIV, hepatitis C. So we support people who need harm reduction services. Uh, and we also have uh, harm reduction housing. And so those are people who uh, who use substances uh, who stay in our in our residence. Catherine, your organization's connection uh, would seem a bit more obvious based on the title of uh, your organization. But, uh, you know, it seems like you're dealing with a, a plethora of issues, uh, addiction care, counseling. Uh, you've received funding for housing and homelessness. Is this uh, more uh, holistic approach to addictions care useful? Or, or do you sometimes feel like you've just got too much on your plate, too much to handle? Uh, no, I would say that it is helpful. I think we... Uh we've been really blessed to be able to expand our programs and to be able to support our clients in a number of different ways. Um, and 
we support a couple of um, addiction medicine clinics, so methadone, methadone suboxone clinics that are run by another uh, physician, but we support them with nursing and counseling um, uh, services. So being able to have that holistic interdisciplinary team has been really, really helpful. Holly, one of the things we've been trying to sort of figure out as we count down to the municipal election campaign is, uh, and election day, obviously, is how much do you think your organization has been supported by either provincial and or municipal governments over the last few years? Uh, so at, certainly at the municipal level, uh, we, we've certainly seen a shift uh, over the last year, uh, particularly around uh, working with people who are experiencing mental health, addiction and homelessness. Um, we've received uh, some funding from the city as well as some support in uh, not clearing out encampments. Uh, the police took a very uh, strong stand uh, saying that this is not a criminal matter, uh, that this is a health and social service matter. So we're going to let our health and social service professionals deal with that. And we're going to stand down. And this is going on well uh, across the country. Homeless encampments are being you know, wiped out. And so uh, so we've definitely seen it there at the provincial level. I would say, you know, where we benefit from uh, a very close relationship with the Ministry of Health and Long Term Care through their AIDS Bureau and Hep C program. They've always been wonderful to work with, but we've not seen at the government level uh, any increases to funding in some some time, despite the fact that um, our incidence of HIV our incidence of hepatitis C and our incidence of overdose are uh, far and away above the provincial average. So it's 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 kind of disappointing not to see that happen. Catherine, where you are? Well, in fact, I mean, province-wide, there's been a transition uh, in the administration of healthcare uh, from the local health integration networks, or LINs, as the Queen's Park Watchers call them, to the creation of Ontario health teams. And uh, I'm wondering, has that uh, impacted the service delivery uh, on your end as you try to help people struggling with uh, mental health and addiction issues? Um, well, I would say the move to Ontario health has certainly taken it away from the more local planning. Certainly in our area, probably feel that we have less of an influence or impact on how services are being um, funded and uh, supported within our area. And I don't think there's been as as much of a relationship, quite frankly, with with the larger entity as we did have with our with the uh, LINs. Um, so I would say, yeah, so I think it's been been different for sure. Do you think that would be helpful to have more local elected leaders uh, having a voice in these uh, health teams? Yeah, and sorry, I should have spoken a little bit more directly about the health team. So we do have an Ontario health team um, in here on in Perth. Uh, and so we've actually, we were one of the first um, Ontario health teams in the province. And we're very, very fortunate that um, we've always had a really good working relationship among our health partners, but also with the municipalities. And so we are constantly um you know, in, in touch with them and, and thinking about how do we bring them into the conversations because it's not, many of our issues are not just health issues, right? And, and certainly mental health and addictions crosses many, many uh, parts of the community. Uh, and so it's, it can't just be solved within the healthcare, um, healthcare system. Holly, back over to you. Uh, we're obviously just a couple of weeks away, two, between two and three weeks away from election day for the municipal election campaign. And I presume that you are carefully either studying the platforms or questioning the people who are seeking votes on the 24th of October as to whether or not they uh, have the interests of your clients at heart. So uh, what are you hearing and what do you want to hear? Absolutely. We're following it with uh, with a lot of interest, particularly given the fact that our relationship has certainly shifted and changed with the city. Um, 
I uh, hearing a lot of mixed uh, uh, messages. There are a couple of uh, candidates who are very clear in what needs to happen with respect to mental health, addictions, homelessness, overdose prevention, all of those things. And whether I agree with their strategies or not, they've definitely got a good sense of the issue. And then uh, I'm hearing from others just like, oh, well, I'll have to study that more. And it's like, for me personally, that's uh, being that it's, it's so critical to our service that we are disproportionately represented in the numbers. If you're not coming on day one of your campaign with a bit of a plan on how to address this, then yeah, I, to me, that just feels very weak uh, as a position. And so uh, I'm very much interested in those candidates who, uh, whether I agree or not, have uh, a solid plan behind them or have given it some, some serious consideration. Um, unfortunately, I don't see a lot of that uh, within the platforms. Catherine, how about you? Same question. Are you are you quizzing the candidates to see what they know and whether they stand with you? Uh, absolutely. And I'm, I'm fortunate to know actually all the candidates for uh, all the mayoral candidates. Uh, so it's been interesting to watch uh, and listen to them speak to the issues of mental health and addictions. And, you know, mental health homelessness is such a huge issue everywhere. Um, and so I think really looking at what are their plans or what are their thoughts and, and are they looking to um, be uh you know, to partner, right, with, with the services that um, that are doing the work uh, and, uh, you know, not necessarily thinking they have all the answers uh, and, you know, being prepared to, to partner with us and, and uh, come together as a community. And one more quick follow-up. When you hear a candidate say, well, I think I'm going to have to study that some more, what do you interpret that to mean? They're not interested. Holly, the scale of the addiction crisis, the opioid issue, whatever you want to call it in your community, I mean, can you give us some sense of the numbers? Uh, because, you know, we had uh, the mayor of Sault Ste. Marie, Christian Provenzano on the podcast last week, and, uh, you know, he described some of what his community is going through. What's it like in Thunder Bay? Uh, so I don't have the specific numbers in front of me from the coroner's report uh, uh, for this quarter, but uh, but I can tell you uh, that last quarter um, our numbers were considered higher than uh, Vancouver, which was considered the epicenter uh, in Canada of the uh, the overdose crisis, and so uh, that's really really alarming, uh, particularly given that we we have uh, fewer resources um, to address uh, some of the issues or to even treat people. Uh, once they've been impacted uh, by um, uh, overdose. We also have less resources to address the families who are left behind, creating more and more crisis, uh, particularly uh, impacted by mental health and addiction. And so we're just seeing this constant circus uh, of, of impact after impact, multiple losses, uh, turning to substances as a way of coping uh, and uh, crisis in mental health uh, that are really truly rooted in trauma. So we are we are a series of a set of communities here up north that are in trouble. We're in real trouble. Our communities are in crisis and nobody's sounding the alarm. I think that's really important to say because obviously there, there is also addiction issues and mental health issues here in Toronto, but the scale of what is happening in some northern communities relative to the resources they have to address them uh, is um, very, very different. I'll, I'll leave it at that. But because I am sort of talking about the distinction between you know, the, the largest city in the province and and what other communities are going through. Uh, maybe, uh, Holly, and I'll ask you to start again. I mean, can you talk a bit about the the unique needs of Thunder Bay and, and how it may require a different approach from what you would see in a larger city like 
Toronto or Ottawa. Well, I mean, certainly, you know, we need we need a lot of the same things that uh, uh, that other communities need. But uh, right now we're experiencing a, a, a severe housing crisis. Uh, and for us, uh, the need to be indoors starts a lot earlier uh, than our than our southern counterpart. Right. So while the rest of the province was sitting at 15, 16, 18 degrees yesterday, we were at five. So it starts a lot earlier for us. And so the pressure is on. Um, we, again, you pointed out, we have uh, fewer services, fewer options. Um, a lot of the options that have been created during the pandemic were uh, those that, that took place online. Uh, that's, uh, there's a, a digital divide uh, in my community. Uh, most of the people that I serve don't have access to that unless they come to my center. Well, my center is only open certain days. Uh, as far as unique needs, I would say one of the, the, the most unique uh, pieces for us would always be uh, working through a cultural lens. And certainly, you know, every community feels that way. But the cultural mix here uh, in the north is quite different than it is in lots of other urban centers across Canada. Uh, and so um, in particular, we we need to work within uh, an Indigenous uh, uh, framework and we need to we really need to adapt our services and adapt our, our um, uh, community planning through um, uh, two-eyed seeing, which is the Western uh, lens as well as an Indigenous lens, uh, and to, to blend those together in ways that are meaningful to the community. And we are strong proponents of people with lived experience being part of the planning and not in a tokenistic way, but on a boots on the ground. This affects me. I need to be part of this conversation. Catherine, maybe I could ask you the same question. W- what does your community need uh, to address these challenges that would be unique from a larger city? Stratford is the largest um, city or the only city in Huron and Perth counties. So we have one larger community uh, surrounded by a number of very small communities. So things tend to center in, in Stratford, right? So the services don't necessarily, I mean, we, I think, personally, I think we do a great job of getting them out into the other communities, um, but that's, but it's a struggle, right? To, to get services out into the smaller communities for people. Um, and if you, you know, don't have transportation, you can't get anywhere, right? And so, um, and I understand even in large centers, it doesn't matter if there's a bus, if you can't afford the bus, it's still, it's still a barrier. But here there's not even a bus, right? So there's no way to even to even get there. And, and certainly as Holly was talking about the, the um, divide with digital, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, we did lots of getting, you know, tablets and phones out to people and whatever so they could stay connected. But if you're in a pocket in a rural community where the internet is not good, then it doesn't matter. I think too, in smaller communities, people don't, I think it's it's shifting and it's changing, but I think at one time people didn't want to think we had these issues here, right? And so that was a, it's a Toronto issue. It's, you know, a larger city issue. It's, it's not happening here. I mean, for the longest time when I worked here and I told people where I worked, they'd be like, oh, we have an addiction agency here? It's like, mm-hmm, yes, we do. And, and we need one here, you know? And so, and, you know, homelessness, certainly that's that's come to the forefront too. And I think people are recognizing those issues, but I think we're a long way from people really understanding them um, and understanding, you know, um, the impacts of those. And I, and I just wanted to add to something Holly was saying around the opiate crisis and the impact on the communities, but also the impact on our staff, um, you know, of, of deaths of clients who we've worked with, you know, for years and maybe been involved in our clinics, et cetera. And, you know, hearing about them dying and it's, it's been very, very difficult for everyone as the numbers rise. I heard Holly use the word endorsement a moment ago. And I think that that should be the last question we ask of both of you. And that is, who are you endorsing for mayor? And if people care about this issue, which candidate should they vote for for council? 
Go ahead, Holly, you first. Wow, you really put me on the spot with that one. Uh, so, I mean, here, <laughs> here locally, uh, I, I feel like uh, I, I have a good relationship, a good working relationship and a long history uh, with one candidate. Uh, and I feel that they have uh, the, the experience um, to, uh, to connect the issues uh, um, together, uh, as well as some, uh, some good solid business acumen uh, and so uh, uh, for me and for my household, uh, we're voting for uh, Gary Mack. And uh, council support that you like or you haven't seen any yet? Well, there's an interesting candidate in my ward, in the McIntyre ward, who showed up. I work uh, in the encamp, the homeless encampments all summer long, and uh, we were doing outreach this week. And uh, the, the counselor for the McIntyre ward didn't know we were out there, but he showed up after having attended an event and there was food left over. And he brought it out because he knew where people were camping and he wanted to share those resources. And he had socks and he had food. And he was asking me right away, who are you? And are you like giving these people trouble? You got his name? Uh, I actually don't. He gave me his business card and I don't have his name on me. (laughs) He was new to me. He was new to me, but I was fascinated because it's the first time I've seen that. Uh, There's been a lot of politicizing of the homeless crisis here and addictions and mental health. Uh, But this is the first time I saw somebody with boots on the ground from the city and not with the cameras rolling and trying to get attention. So that that really piqued my interest. Interesting encounter. Catherine, how about you in Stratford? Uh, We should say, actually, both of your cities, Stratford and Thunder Bay, the incumbent mayors are not running again. So it's an open seat in both Mm -hmm. cases. So, okay, Catherine, over to you. Uh, Well, I'm a bit torn. So we have uh, three candidates running for mayor. And uh, as I said earlier, I I do know them. Uh, And I would say, you know, Kathy Bacalactis, who has experience on council already, uh, and I have worked with Kathy on a, a few committees and I know that she has a real understanding of of the um, social determinants of health and, and the understanding of what's needed in a community to ensure that it's an inclusive community for everyone. Martin Ritzma is someone who also I know has a real passion and, and heart for uh, for people and uh, and you know wanting to be connected and such. So I must admit I'm a bit torn at the moment um, but uh, about where which way I'll go. Um, and then in regards to councillors, I, I uh, wasn't able to get to the candidates debate um, on Monday, but I, I mean, there's a couple that I know, uh, Cody Seben and Bonnie Henderson, who have been on the council um, before, and um, uh, Brad Beatty, et cetera. So these are people that I know understand the issues and, and uh, have been, you know, very um, compassionate and, and open to the work that we're doing. So those are a few, but I'm sure there's more. Gotcha. Uh, Catherine and Holly, first of all, thanks for the work that you do. And thank you for taking some time away from that work uh, to share your thoughts with our listeners here on the On Poly podcast. Much appreciated. And that is the On Poly podcast for Wednesday, October 12th, 2022. A day late this week because of the Thanksgiving holiday. And I hope everyone listening had something happen this past year for which they can give thanks. Still love to have your feedback on our newish format or other things that are of interest. You can email us at onpolitics at tvo.org. If you like it, like Catherine does, Catherine we talked about at the top, tell a friend, why won't you? We also want to remind you to read our weekly On Poly newsletter, which drops every Tuesday, and you can subscribe to that at tvo.org slash newsletters. Uh, this week, Steve and I uh, wax eloquent on alliances within the Federation, uh, now that Daniel Smith is the new Premier of Alberta and Francois Legault has been re-elected in Quebec, and whether that will change the country's political dynamic.
Also happy to bring your attention to our Nerds on Politics videos. They are back with a whole new look. JMM, I just watched yours on why we have no political parties at the city halls across the province. That was very interesting. Party politics federally, party politics provincially, but not municipally. And now we know why. This week's podcast episode was produced by Tiffany Lamb, edited by Matthew O'Mara, and our managing editor is Shahir Tajvidi. Production support from Nikki Ashworth and Jonathan Hallowell. COVID is not over, people, so let's remember, as my dad likes to say, stay positive, test negative. Happy Thanksgiving, Steve. To you too. <laughs>